Welcome to the Edinburgh Elam Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like more information or to find out what's happening this week, please visit www.edinburghelam.com. So, good morning. Still morning. Um, so, my name is, it really is we. <laughs> and it really is we, Lam. And um, uh, I've, been, I've been in Scotland for uh, quite a number of years, and um, I, still, I still get uh, funny remarks about my name, uh, something I'm quite used to, and I don't mind at all. <laughs> so, um, Pastor Gordon asked me to share the word about three weeks ago, so that's not a lot of time. Um, so I started thinking about what I have learned um, or the lessons I have learned uh, over summer, something that has impacted my life in some ways because um, you know, I didn't have a lot of time to prepare. And this, 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 this thing came to mind. Uh, I'd like to share two surprising lessons I learned from John 8. Uh, and in particular, verses 1 to 12. So please, please turn with me uh, in your Bibles to John 8. Now, I've got some of the scriptures on the screen. This is how, some of you know that I'm part of this group called PCCF that meets on a Friday night. And one of the things we do when we share the word of God is that we put the words on the screen so that everybody can sort of follow better. So is that okay? So please feel free to follow in your Bibles. Uh, and or on the screen. Not every scripture is on the screen, but uh, we found that this actually works better when uh, we are teaching people to follow the word of God. So let's, let's read it together. John 8 verse 1, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and live your life of sin. Now, I'm sure most of you have read this passage. That's why I call it Two Surprising Lessons, because I only discovered these lessons after I studied this passage in more detail. Now, if you have read this passage, you may also know that it is one of the more controversial passages in the Bible. Instead, in fact, if you read your Bible app, or whatever version you're reading, you may see at the end of John 7, the previous chapter, that some of the earlier manuscripts did not include John 8, 1 to 11. And some scholars suggested that this was because this account did not really fit the flow of John 7 and John 8. It seemed to be very abruptly inserted. 
I must admit that when I read this passage, I thought it was initially because some felt it did not fit the character of Jesus. How could Jesus forgive sin just like that? I thought this is why some people were struggling. I also thought this was a very convenient passage to omit altogether because what did Jesus write on the ground? None of us know what Jesus wrote on the ground and if we don't know what Jesus wrote on the ground, then we wouldn't understand the passage. So if we don't understand the passage, why don't we just take it out? So I don't have time to go into this, but the essential conclusion is that it does flow and it does fit the character of Jesus and we should study it as part of John's gospel. And at the end of this uh, message, I hope you will see why. So, what surprising lessons did I learn? Next slide. I want to divide this passage into three parts. The first part is called the dilemma. The second part is decision. And the third part is the deliverance. So the first part, the, the dilemma. Now the dilemma is from verse one to six. And if you look at verse one, it says that, but Jesus, but Jesus. It doesn't seem like the, just the beginning of a new thing. It seems like a continuation of something that happened previously, isn't it? And that something previously was in John 7. Now, what happened in John 7? In John 7, it was the festival of tabernacles, and Jesus was also at the feast. Jesus already had a reputation, and he was creating waves at the festival. People were divided about who Jesus was. If you turn with me to John chapter 7, for example, if you want to look at verse 11 to 13, I don't have it on the screen. Verse 11 to 13, John chapter 7. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is, where is he? Where is Jesus? And people were divided. Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. People were divided about him. But the Pharisees wanted to arrest him because of the trouble that he was creating. In verse 32, if you scroll down to verse 32, they sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus. But they came back empty-handed. And if you come down to verse 45, finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? The guards replied, no one ever spoke the way this man does. The Pharisees retorted, you mean he has deceived you also? Has any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? And throughout the whole of John chapter 7, we saw how the Pharisees really wanted to arrest Jesus, but they couldn't because they had nothing on him. Now let's come back to John chapter 8. Next slide. Now, because there was nowhere, no way to arrest Jesus, the Pharisees then got together in John chapter 8 to come up with a new plan because they couldn't find anything on him. And we see this in John chapter 8, verse 3. If you look carefully, there is a new character introduced here. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees. You can't find these people in John chapter 7. The teachers of the law. The teachers of the law are probably another description of them uh, was that they were the experts of the law or they were the lawyers. 
They were the people who really, really knew the word of God. They were the people who really, really knew the law. And why did the Pharisees involve the teachers of the law? It was because they wanted to trap Jesus using the law. So they consulted these experts. And I can just imagine them pouring over the law into the middle of the night, just trying to find one loophole, one pitfall that they can use to trap Jesus. And finally, they found a plan. So what was the plan? The plan was to use the law Moses gave about adultery. Moses said all adulterers must be stoned. Is that right? No ifs or buts. So that is the law. So let's use that to trap him. Let's put him on the spot. Let's find a woman caught in the act of adultery. Any woman would do. A woman fresh from sin, a woman caught red-handed and throw her in front of Jesus and see what he would do. Now, I may be speculating, but if it's in the middle of the night, in order to find such a woman, where would you go? Probably you go to, I don't know, a brothel, or maybe they would have to find a man to seduce a woman and then catch her red-handed. The idea was to get such a woman at whatever cost. They had no regards about her dignity. It was all about trapping Jesus at the expense of the woman. And the plan they came up, was, came up with was almost brilliant. What was the trap? The trap was this. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? The trap was this. If Jesus said, yes, let's stone the woman, then they would immediately accuse him of breaking Roman law because only the Romans can administer the death penalty. They would immediately run to the Romans. He would be arrested. Now, if Jesus said no, then immediately they could accuse him of breaking Jewish laws. Are you with me? And they can bring him immediately to the chief priests and tell the people that Jesus breaks Jewish laws. He will be discredited. And he will lose their respect. They could arrest him for blasphemy. So it was a dilemma. And one he could not escape from. Say yes, and he will lose. Say no, and he will lose. The Pharisees and teachers of the law have won. How do you get out of that? And everyone was watching, the Pharisees, the crowd, the disciples, the poor woman, everybody was watching Jesus. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? How is he going to get out of this? The crowds were watching. I want you to imagine with me. The crowds were watching. The temperature was rising. Everybody was shouting. The pressure was mounting. The heat is on. It was an almost brilliant plan. There was no way out for Jesus. What did he do? So we come to the second part of the passage, the decision. So what did Jesus do? We saw that when faced with the dilemma, Jesus got together his disciples and they tried to come up with a counter plan. No. Did he do that? No. 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 What did Jesus do? He said to the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you've got me. I've lost. I surrender. There's no way out. Take the woman. Whatever. Did he do that? No. What did he do? He bent down and he started writing on the ground with his finger. What was he trying to do? Now, for centuries, people have been debating what Jesus was actually drawing. Was he taking notes, trying to come up with a counter plan? Was he 
drawing the law? Was it just scribbling? People would go back and forth. And my, my belief is that it really doesn't matter what Jesus was drawing, or else God would have revealed it to us. Because I believe the most important thing was not what he wrote, but the fact that he wrote, he bent down, he said nothing, he simply bent down and he started writing. But what was he trying to do? What had he decided to do when faced with the dilemma? What was his decision? Now to answer that, we have to go back again to the trap that Jesus was in. Now, the, tr the plan was to trap him using the law to see what he would do with a woman caught in adultery regarding the law. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the laws were basing it on a passage of scripture which I would like you to turn to. It is in Deuteronomy chapter 22. Let's, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 22. I haven't got it on the screen uh, now, but just, let's just turn to it. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. They were basing their trap on that law. And it would be good to find out what the law actually says, to find out whether their plan was fail-proof. So Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22 to 24. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be married and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gates of that town and stone them to death. The young man, the young woman, because she was in town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife, you must purge the evil from among you. Now, do you see the problem? Do you see the flaw? What was the flaw? That's why I said the plan was almost brilliant. It's not brilliant, because there were flaws. What were the flaws? Well, the number one flaw was that there was no man. It was just a woman. So both the man and the woman had to be put to death. Where is the man? So if there's no man, there is no trial. And the second thing is, when you mention stoning in the law, it only refers to the case of virgins. Have they proven that the woman was a virgin? So there's so many, what I call technicalities of this trial. I'm not a lawyer, by the way, okay? There's so many things that, 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 that Jesus could have easily pointed to and thrown the case out at that point. In the UK, this will be called a mistrial, a trial that cannot proceed because of errors in the, in the proceedings. And Jesus could have just thrown the case out at that point to say, these are the flaws, get out just on mere technicalities. Guys, you want to trap me using the law? You kidding me? Do you know who wrote the law? <laughs> I am the law. I've caught you out. Let this woman go. And that's why there were so many commentators who said that when he wrote on the ground, he was writing Deuteronomy 22 so that the Pharisees would know that the problems with their, with their trap and then they will slowly walk away one by one. But I don't think that's what Jesus did. Because if that was what he was doing, writing the law on the ground just to let them see the flaws in their plan, he would have then stood up and said, where is the man? Is this woman a virgin? No. What Jesus said later on was, 
Let anyone who is without sin be the first to cast a stone, isn't it? So why? What did Jesus decide to do? And why did he write on the ground? I think Jesus decided to do more than just win the contest and save himself. I think he decided not just to get out of the trap, but to do something else. What was that? And that was the first surprising lesson I learned from this passage. Next slide. I believe he saw it as an opportunity to teach them. The lesson I learned is that God is always teaching us. Every one of us. Verse 2, it says that at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. Well, he was teaching. And they interrupted him and brought in this woman and tried to trap him. So instead of feeling flustered, Jesus just looked around and he thought, well, I was teaching. Now suddenly my audience have become bigger. Wow, I will continue teaching. And now I can teach more people. God is always teaching us. And when I was meditating on this, I felt the love of God. A God who will take every opportunity to teach us something about himself. Even when we don't realize it. Even when we don't see it. And all day long, every day, he is there to teach us something about him. Something about life. Often we don't stop and listen. Often we are so flustered and so focused on what is ahead of us. But God is always there teaching. And when we realize that, when we realize that God is always teaching us and God God is teaching us right now or in the middle of what we are facing, we start to feel his love. The love of someone who is taking the time to teach us. It gives us a sense of the presence of God. Wow, he's teaching me. He's speaking to me. It gives us a different perspective. It takes the pressure off. Now, there's so many times, so many times in my life, I've, I've, I've walked into an interview or an exam or presentation or, or discernment or, or, or a surgery, an operation. Some of you know that that's what I do for a living. And instead of thinking about the surgery, don't worry, I still concentrate on what I'm doing. <laughs> I... I I just focus instead of what God is trying to teach me at that point. I think about heavenly things. I think about Ephesians, what Alvin said earlier, seated in the heavenly realms. I think about what that means in the midst of my interview. And and you ask, if you think about God's word while you're just about to do something very stressful, wouldn't wouldn't that distract you? No, it doesn't. It actually helps. Because God's word is relevant and it's useful for every circumstance. And somehow I find that always the heavenly focus allows me to function better. Because I start thinking, hey, you know, God loves me. You know, what's the big deal? (laughs) Now, some of you know we have this little girl that runs around with us, Ailey. Some, those of you who are parents, you understand here, we have an agenda every night. Mom and the daughter comes back 6.30 every night, and the moment they get home, it is a routine. You have to get through. First of all, it's feeding, and then it's bathing, and then it's read a book, and it's always the same book. And then you put the 
you put the child, you put the baby to sleep by 8, 8.30, then, then you can relax. And every night it seems as if it was just an agenda. It is just an agenda that we have to do. You know, feeding, bathing, read the book, put to sleep. Get through the agenda and then it's done. <sighs> now, I have learned, and you know you learn a lot from having children. I have learned that I can simply get through that agenda every night. It's just an agenda, something that I have to do. You wake up in the morning, this is, there's, there's something I have to do. It's just an agenda. I have to get through this day and then everything will be okay. You know, every night is an agenda. I, I realized I could simply get through the agenda every night or I could use the time to teach her. And teaching requires effort. It requires caring. It requires love. Now, now, you can say, you know, if you don't teach her, she will learn herself, right? She's a human being after all. All human beings will learn naturally, right? But every time she comes back from nursery and she learns a new word, we, 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 we thought to ourselves, hey, somebody else has been teaching her. But parents are not teaching her or not making the effort. Or, or, I mean, the mom teaches her all the time, but the father is not teaching her. And it, and it made me realize I cannot neglect teaching her at the expense of getting through the agenda. You teach somebody because you love them. And God teaches us because he loves us. Amen. And he's teaching us at all times, even when the pressure is incredible. Just like what Jesus was facing at that point. The pressure was mounting on him and he still turned around and taught them. And that was the first surprising lesson I learned from this passage. Next slide. If I were to summarize what God is teaching us every day, it would be these two things. What is more important? Who is more important? Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothes. What is more important? All day long, God is whispering to us, what is more important? What is more important? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in buns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who is more important? Remember, who is more important? You are precious. You are loved. I'm on your side. And all day long, we rush into what we have to do. And we get so worried about what we have to face that day. And God is saying, stop. Remember, what is more important? Think about me. Think about eternity. Remember, who is more important? I love you. Everything will be okay. And I, I challenged PCCF, the students, to, to end each day with reflecting on not just what have I achieved today, what have I accomplished today, but rather what have I learned today? Because that is so much more precious. And God cares so much about us. He is teaching us all day, every day. So back again to John 8. Next slide. So what was Jesus doing? He was teaching them, all of them. Even the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, he was teaching them. I always thought that all he cared about was defending the poor woman and rebuking the Pharisees. But he was also teaching them. I mean, can you feel the love of God for everyone? And he wanted to teach them about grace. Yes, I agree, Arwin. Everything flows. That's the first thing you mentioned this morning. Grace. How did he do it? He stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Why? 
I believe it was to calm them down, make them think, make them stop, make them realize their own need for grace. Next slide. Now, we saw earlier Deuteronomy 22. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both, this, both the man we slept with her and the woman must die, you must purge the evil from Israel. You must purge the evil from Israel. Verse 23, you must purge the evil from among you. And this is also from Deuteronomy 17, on the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one. The hand of the witnesses must be the first in putting that person to death. And then the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from among you. Do you get it? To put someone to death is not just to throw the stone. It is to purge the evil from among them by getting rid of that person. But if you're going to carry out a death sentence, it will be carried out by the witnesses and then everybody else. And the presumption was that the witnesses and everybody else was, were not guilty of the same sin. Hence, they can purge the evil from among them because they were innocent and the woman was the evil. You, you get it? She was the evil one. They were not. If someone has sinned among us in this room, and we are so keen to purge that evil person from our midst, we all have to be innocent. Yeah. And who hasn't sinned? Do you understand what's happening here? Let's say, let's say, let's say Elvin is the one that we want to execute. Woo! It means all of us need to take part. All of us. How does that make you feel? Some of you may feel great, I don't know, right? <laughs> Let's do it! Let's do it! Let's stone Elvin! But some of you may start feeling really uncomfortable because you don't really think you're that innocent either, right? Because to purge that evil from among us means that and you're not innocent means that you are also part of the evil that needs to be purged. And who hasn't sinned? So the Pharisees initially thought they have not sinned. They, they initially thought that they are, they, they, they are perfect because years of legalism have made them self-righteous. This made them blind to their own need for grace and forgiveness. And Jesus needed to, to, to lovingly teach them. That's why he bent down and he wrote to calm them down, to let them see, hey, you're not that innocent either. You need grace. And they kept questioning him. And he bent down a second time. And then they slowly got it. You want to purge this evil from among you, this poor woman? Do you understand what that means? Do you really understand what that means? Are you sure you are not part of that evil too? Mm. Are you sure you are not an evil that also needs to be purged? And slowly, one by one, they realize their own need for grace and forgiveness. And they dropped the stone and they walked away. You know, Jesus didn't do it to shame them. Jesus did it to teach them lovingly that they needed grace and compassion. The woman was in the middle of the crowd. She was hopeless, she was condemned if there was no grace. But they also belong in the middle of the crowd, together with her, hopeless and condemned if there was no grace. And all of us belong in the middle of the crowd, hopeless and condemned if there was no grace. That was so amazing. 
Jesus could have shamed them throughout the trial at that time, but he did not. Because if he had done that, he would have won the contest, saved himself, but he would not have won them over. And our God is a God who always teaches us and draws us back to him. And let me just draw this to a close with my third point. And the second surprising lesson. The first surprising lesson was that God is always teaching us, even in the heat of the moment. It's all about teaching us to draw near to Him because He loves us and He cares for us. Whoever, it doesn't matter if it's the woman or the Pharisees or teachers of the Lord, He teaches all of us about the need for grace. And the second surprising lesson is in the last part, what I entitled the deliverance. Now, so far we have seen the dilemma that they put Jesus in. We have seen the decision Jesus made to teach them instead, to make them realize their need for grace. But Jesus didn't stop there. He did something more, something incredible. What did he do next? He delivered them. He delivered them. Next slide. This is the next surprising lesson I learned. Jesus wanted to not just save us from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. And you can see that right here in this passage. Mm -hmm. He delivered them from the power of sin there and then. How did he do it? That's something that's so easily missed. Next, we read, next slide. Sorry, can you, can you go back again? And, and again. So we, we read in verse 10 about what Jesus did next. Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and live your life of sin. Jesus was delivering her. And this is a lesson so easily missed. Now, I understood the part about Jesus not condemning her. It's an incredible lesson. But it's something that we can understand. Has no one condemned you? That means, is there anyone who is innocent enough to condemn you? The answer is no. Everyone was guilty. The incredible thing was that neither do I condemn you. Jesus, the only innocent man who could condemn her, the only one worthy of condemning her, said he would also not condemn her. The idea was that he saw himself also as guilty because in a few days' time, he's going to go to the cross. He will be numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53. He will become like one of us so, as, so, so what he was effectively saying is that I'm going to be part of the guilty one and I will not condemn you because I'm going to die on the cross for your sins. I'm going to take all your sins upon me uh, when I go to the cross. What an amazing saviour. What an amazing saviour. But that's not, what all, that's not all he did. He saved the woman from the penalty of her sin, let her go, but he also delivered the woman from the power of her sin. Which, in this case, was sexual immorality. God is an amazing saviour. He saved us from the penalty of our sins, but he never wants to leave us there. He wants to deliver us from the power of sin. Otherwise, we would still remain under bondage. But how did he do it? He said to her, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more, or go now and live your life of sin. What does that mean? How did saying that give her the power to overcome sin? 
Where, where is the power in that? Now, was it a condition? Neither do I condemn you if you would live your life of sin. Is it a condition? No, because we know that Jesus forgives unconditionally. Was it a command? Neither do I condemn you, but make sure you live your life of sin. Is it a command? If it's a command, how could he ensure that the woman would obey it? We don't, we don't know anything about her after that. There's no account of her not sinning. We don't know what happened. So what was he trying to do? I think hidden between those words, Jesus was using the power of grace to win her over. God knows the power of grace. God knows that if we truly experience grace and forgiveness, we would find the power to stop sinning because it is grace and not performance that will stop us from sinning. And so often we tell people to focus on performance. Stop doing this. Stop doing that. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? You gotta try harder. You gotta perform better. You gotta, you gotta just keep going. Well, if you just focus on that, you will end up becoming like the Pharisees. And you probably find that you will still continue to struggle because you are doing it all in your own strength. Whereas God is saying to us, forget about your performance. Forget about trying harder. The first thing you need to do is to acknowledge that you can't do it and that you have sinned and you have failed and you will never be able to do it on your own. Give up. Then, accept this unconditional acceptance I have for you, the grace to forgive you of all your sins and all your sins that you will ever commit in the future and come back to me. I will never condemn you. And then in me, you will find the power to overcome your sin. That's the power of grace. Because ultimately, it is love and intimacy with God that helps us overcome sin because he wants us to stop trying in our own strength but to come to him instead. I believe Jesus knew exactly what he was doing with that woman. He knew what the woman had experienced, the grace and mercy of God, and he had changed her life forever. He was confident enough to let her go. He was confident to believe that she would sin no more. It was not a flippant, complacent move because he knew the true and life-changing power of grace and unconditional forgiveness. Now, was it risky? Of course it's risky. Grace is risky. But God would have it no other way. Now, what about the, the Pharisees? Well, I believe that he did the same with them. By teaching them about the need for grace, when they, when they realized their need for grace, I believe he knew that at least a few of them would, would recognize this and they will come back to God eventually. And in the process, they will have the same experience of grace as the woman. They'll be set free from their sin. Now, I'm, I'm sure you are, most of you are familiar with Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no argument. We all have sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Agree? Now, verse 24, Romans 3, 20, 20, 24, and all are justified freely by His grace. There is nothing more to do to accept that. We have all fallen. We all need His grace. 
right? Yes. Nothing more to do. Now, there is actually something else we have to do. Next slide, okay, here. There's a very interesting passage in Hebrews 12, 15 to 16. So at the bottom, you can see there, Romans 3, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody has fallen short of the glory of God. Now, Hebrews 12, see to it, having fallen short of the glory of God, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. No one falls short of the grace of God. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as his oldest son. Romans 3.23, we have all fallen short of the grace of God. Hebrews 12, do not fall short of the grace of God. That means it is still possible to fall short of the grace of God. See to it. See to it means keep reminding one another. Keep reminding the person next to you. Don't fall short of the grace of God. That means don't forget what God has done for you. Don't forget that He's died for you. Don't forget the unconditional mercy and love that He has for you. Don't forget how much He loves you. Don't forget that whatever you have done, God has forgiven you and come back to Him. Keep reminding one another because our natural response when we sin is to run away from God and run away from the church. But we have to see to it. We have to keep reminding one another of the grace of God because if not, we will fall short of the grace of God. And if we fall short of the grace of God, two things will happen from this verse. The first thing is bitterness. See to it that no one's fall short of the grace of God and no bitter root. Bitterness will happen when we fall short of the grace of God. Have you ever noticed that? When we forget what God has done for us and how much He has forgiven us, we start to think we, had, we deserve this, we deserve that. We become angry, we become bitter, and the root of that is not what people have done for us, done to us. The root of that is that we have fallen short of the grace of God. We have lost that sense of intimacy with God. We've forgotten how much God has forgiven us. And the second thing is sexual immorality. I think that is because the root of sexual immorality, in fact, the root of all sin, is again lack of intimacy with God. When we fall short of the grace of God. When we think we can do it on our own. When we think we can fight this temptation on our own. It is impossible. So when I look at John 8, and I wonder why so many of them were struggling with sexual immorality. Do you know that's what the passage implied? Jesus said, if any one of you is without sin, without the sin of sexual immorality, be the first to cast the stone. What happened to them? They walked away, and I, and I always wonder why. Why were so many of them struggling with sexual immorality? And then I remember this verse. The Pharisees were all struggling because they had fallen short of the grace of God. They were so focused on performance. They have lost their intimacy with God. They were so focused on doing good things. They forgot how much God has forgiven them. And in their own strength, they could not overcome this sin. Because only grace can can help them. Because grace not only saves us from the penalty of sin, it delivers us from the power of sin. We need to remind one another. It is not about trying harder. 
It is not about punishing people when they fail. It is to teach them to come back to the grace of God. And when they fail, as we all will, run back to God, not run away from God. Because only together with Him can we do it. But the first step is always to experience the grace. Experience the grace first, and then the power comes. It is, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. It is not, go and sin no more, then neither will I condemn you. That's what the cross is all about. The cross is all about grace. Because when we come back to the cross, it is all about remembering what Jesus had done for us on the cross. And in, in that contriteness, in that brokenness, we fall down at his feet and we receive his forgiveness. We say to him, we can't do it. Forgive me. And then that breaks the power of sin in our lives. It is not to try harder and keep trying to do that in our own strength. And then when we fail, we feel that we can't come to the cross. No, we come back to the cross first because apart from the cross, we have no power. And so that was the second surprising lesson. Next slide. I learned from this. And last one. I learned from this passage. The first was to remember that God always teaches us because He loves us, He cares for us. Make time to listen to Him. Switch your focus to heavenly things. He's there teaching us all the time. Even when we are having lunch after this. The second is to remember His grace, the grace that saves us not just from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. Thank you for listening to the Edinburgh Elam podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving word. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter at Edinburgh Elam.